0: Family, it's great to see you. Thank you for worshiping Jesus with us this morning. You know, you know who else or what else? It's great to see the sunshine. I'm like, where'd I move? Seattle? You know, it's bad. You know, it's bad. At the end of uh, the first gathering this morning, uh, somebody's parents parents were in town, and so I was just saying hi, asking questions and stuff. I'm like, hey, where are you from? And they said, well, we're from. And I was apologizing for the weather because they got here last week. I'm like, it was bad. I said, look outside. This is normal December here. Like January and February might get like this past week has been, but this is supposed to be December. And uh, so I said, hey, I'm really sorry. Where are you from? And they're like, well, Florida, but before that, Minnesota. So we felt right at home this week. That didn't help me. That like depressed me because I'm like, if Minnesotans feel at home in Okinawa, things have gone terribly, terribly wrong. It's not even okay. So I'm just glad to see the sun back today because... I mean, I was born and raised in Vermont, and I just, I can't handle it anymore. So give me the sunshine and the heat and the humidity. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. Uh, We thank you that we can can be together and hear our Father's voice. Thank you for giving us your spirit to open our ears, to give us understanding, and to incline our hearts to you, and to give us life. And Father, I pray that by your grace and through your spirit, you would do uh, all of those things again for us this morning. Father, uh, Jesus is the hero of our family. Help us to see him that way this morning and to gladly uh, submit to him. For those of us who are far from home, help us to be warmed by your kindness and to make our way back to you today. And uh, Father, I just thank you that we we can laugh together, we can cry together, we can rejoice, we can suffer sorrow, all of these things we can do together in your family. No guilt, no shame, no expectations. We are perfectly accepted in Jesus. And so we thank you for the freedom that that gives us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm sure you're familiar with these lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know them, right? I know it's it's also your diary or journal entry for your life here in Okinawa. But um, those lines are original to the tale of two cities. Uh, This morning, we're going to learn about a tale of two widows. And for these two widows that we'll meet, we're going to learn it was just simply the worst of times. There were not they, they were strangers to good times, at least in this part of their story. Uh, their lives, as we'll see this morning, were as dark as a moonless night sky. Uh, we're going to learn the story of these widows in the Old Testament book of Ruth, where our Advent series will begin this morning. And so we'll be in Ruth from this morning until probably the Sunday uh, just after Christmas. Ruth can be summarized, the theme of Ruth as a book or a story can be summarized in three words, just three words, okay? In darkness, light. That's, that's, that's the story of Ruth, in darkness, light. And so what we're going to see is as Ruth's story unfolds, we'll see God's far-reaching kindness is the light which dispels the deepest darkness of her night, of our night too, So God's far-reaching kindness is the light which dispels the deepest darkness of our night. Good news for you. This morning, we're only going to explore chapter one. It's a little bit of a reprieve because I know we've been like crushing Job and Romans eight in a Sunday morning. So just one chapter out of this short book this morning. We'll take it easy on ourselves and we'll break that chapter down three ways. Number one, in darkness, running. That'll be verses one to five. Number two, the second section of the chapter is out of darkness returning. And the third section, kind of the final verse of the chapter, is dispelling darkness restoring. So that's in darkness running, out of darkness returning, and dispelling darkness restoring. So let's begin by reading the first five uh, verses of Ruth chapter one, and then we will begin to consider Um, in darkness running. So here we go with verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Go ahead and add those to your list. They were Ephrathites, as a clan name, to clan or tribal name. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion also died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Now, before we read any of those sad details, which really that's just one sad detail after another, um, the setting of the story would have tipped off its original audience that this is a story set in a very, very, very dark time. The opening line begins with, In the days when the judges ruled. So if... This book was accompanied by a soundtrack. If we were watching this as a movie this morning, as we read that opening line, that's where a dark, low, and slow, just foreboding piece of music would be playing in the background. In the days when the judges ruled, those were not good days. Those were dark, dark days. Uh, the time referenced in the days when the judges ruled, that would have occurred between the death of Israel's beloved leader, Joshua, old boy who ruled right after Moses, okay, when Moses, Moses died, Joshua, and right after his death, up until the time where Israel coronated their first king, Saul, about almost 200 years, those are the days that the judges ruled. And if you're a history nerd and you love dates, that's like 1250 BC to 1050, okay, kind of those 200 years right there. You can read all about the dark period of Israel's history um, in the book of Judges, which you'll notice if your Bible's open or you've got it open in your phone, Judges immediately precedes this short book of Ruth. In fact, some scholars believe that Judges and Ruth share the same author, and in fact, were written together to go as a set. Um, Makes sense to me, because Judges is basically a history, so it, it gives us the summary of those 200 years, Uh, it gives us the setting for Ruth at like 40,000 feet. And then Ruth just zooms in on one story in one family's life that would have occurred in that time. In Judges, we see God's people living in an absolutely tragic pattern, generation after generation. And it went something like this. They would rebel and then there would be retribution for that rebellion. And then that retribution, whether it was a famine or plague or an invading army or whatever the trouble was, would lead them to repent and run back to their father. And then when they ran back, they would find rescue, okay? So that's Judges and that cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue, just repeats through Judges, like seven times that cycle repeats. The tragedy in Judges, though, is as that cycle repeats, one element of that cycle begins to fade away, even to the point where it just goes away entirely. Can you guess which piece or element that would be? The repentance piece. Absolutely. Good job. The repentance piece, which is so, so true of our hearts as well. In fact, it would go like this. They would, they would rebel. They would meet with retribution. And it wouldn't even really be repentance anymore. It's not God that they wanted. They didn't, like, they didn't realize, oh, man, we ran from God. We belong with him and worshiping him. We should go back. It was that they want their circumstances fixed. So they didn't even want God in the story. They just wanted God to fix their lives. And as soon as lives were fixed, they just went back to, uh, to doing them. And so the, 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 what we learn in Judges is God's people would be destroyed, would, would self-destruct apart from his kind mercy. And Judges helps us see that about our lives too. We would self-destruct apart from his kind mercy because when he would intervene for their good, most of the time they did not deserve his intervention. But that's the story of my life too. Like I generally don't deserve God's kind intervention on my behalf, but still he intervenes for my good. And so the story of Judges is one of tragedy, chaos, difficulty, violent invasions, famine, lawlessness, civil war. It's basically personal and cultural darkness in every imaginable way in Judges. All of these dark things are consequences of rebellion from a good God. So you don't have to take my word for it. Here's an excerpt from the book of Judges just to give you a brief glimpse of how bad it really was. Chapter 2, verse 16 of Judges says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, saved the people, out of the hand who plundered them. So there's an evidence of God's kindness right there. They didn't deserve it, but he gives them these judges, and through the judges, God saves his people. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and here it is again, he saved them, another act of kindness uh, from the hand of God, he would save them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. There's the gospel in the Old Testament. God is a good father who's moved to pity for his children who are just self-destructing under their rebellion, and he acts for our good. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. it was a bad, bad period of history. And here's a summary statement from Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What we need to take away from Judges is this the tragedies that we read of in the book of Judges are lived out in our lives too, whenever we step out from underneath um, Jesus' kind kingly rule over our lives. But the good news of Judges is even though all of those consequences will be played out in our lives when we rebel, the storyline of God's mercy is also present in our lives too. We are all rebels, but almost probably everybody in here has tasted something of God's kindness through his mercy towards you. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be seated here. Like you've already tasted some of his kindness towards you and you know you don't deserve it. And so God would send these judges. That was an act of kindness too. Um, And whenever they were present, like things would get a little bit better, but they were inadequate because as soon as they would die, Israel would revert. And so the Father in his kindness stops sending us judges and eventually sends us Jesus, who is the true and better judge, the perfect judge of all time. So when he changes a heart, though that change takes place over a lifetime and oftentimes it's painful and it's slow, it's permanent. And he never lets his kids go and he never lets us go back. So Jesus is the true and better judge. So judges is jacked up. That whole period of history is dark, so dark that one historian writes this. He says, their song of joy turned into a sob of sorrow. Like you could summarize judges that way. And so we say all that to say that's the historical setting of Ruth. That's the the context in which the storyline of Ruth is, is happening. That's bad, right? I mean, that's really messed up. In fact, it's been said, it's so messed up, it's been said by another historian, Ruth is a white lily in the mud pond of judges. But that's not really how the story feels when we first started reading it, right? Did verses one to five feel anything like a beautiful little flower floating around in a mud pond? It felt like more mud pond, like that's it. It's just, it's all dark. Uh, Because verse one starts this way, there was a famine in the land. And so because of this ravaging famine, we meet a man of the Ephrathite clan, which, is a weird word, we're not used to that at all. Ephrathite um, happens to be the old school name of Bethlehem. Like before they called the town Bethlehem in the days of the patriarchs, it was, it was known by the name Ephrathite. And so Ephrathite's kind of a, a clan name, but it's the author's way of saying Elimelech, the dude we meet here, didn't just happen to live in Bethlehem. Like his granddaddy, his great granddaddy, like founded the town. Like he's, he, he belongs there. This is his people. This is his place. He should never leave. God's been to bring him here in the promised land. Uh, he's born and raised here. So he's from the town of Bethlehem. And in this famine, he takes his family and he runs. He runs to Moab. You know, here's a map of the journey that they would have taken. You see Bethlehem on the west side of the Dead Sea. And... Uh, they would have gone the 50 or 60 miles up and over the sea and uh, down, down, you see it in big red letters, down all the way there to Moab. You could actually see the hilltops of Moab from Bethlehem. And so they saw, they heard there was food there and they set out. And so the man's name is Elimelech. His wife is Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Chilion. And we're hardly into the story and already we see two sad ironies going on. The first one is this. What is the name Bethlehem, the name of the town? What does it mean? What's it mean? Some of you know. House of? All right, well, you're going to know after this morning. Perfect. House of bread. That's what the name Bethlehem means. It was, it was known as the house of bread. But because of the people's rebellion, Bethlehem is no longer a life-giving place. Rather than being filled with satisfied people, Bethlehem is home to hungry people. And it's a physical hunger for sure. It's a real famine, but there's a more significant hunger plaguing God's people. It's a spiritual hunger. Uh, Their souls are empty. Their souls are aching and longing in the house of bread, the very place that they should be satisfied and glad, not just physically, but spiritually because they're in the presence of God. They're physically hungry and they're spiritually hungry. That's the first sad irony. The second is wrapped up in the character Elimelech. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. So oh boy, I mean that's his name. He's like my God is king. I trust him, I submit to him. When I'm fearful, I run to him. When I need something, food for my family, I run to him. I don't doubt. I don't have to take matters into my own control. I'm not God. He is. He's a good king and I submit. That's what his name means. But rather than looking to his king for help in dark times, Elimelech looks to the horizon where he can see the hilltops of Moab across the water and he he knows there's some food there. And so he takes his family and he runs. Rather than remaining in the promised land, no less, and trusting his king, rather than repenting for his part in the rebellion that brought the plague on in the first place, he could have done that. He doesn't. Rather than repenting and remaining repenting and trusting, Elimelech takes matters into his own hands and he runs to Moab. Rather than trusting his king's provision and faithfulness, Elimelech attempts to take control. And this decision will serve to make a dark season even darker for his family. See, running to Moab because they have food seems legit. Seems like the thing you would do if your family was starving, like, well, let's go to Moab and we'll we'll, we'll get, we'll get food there. But The first readers of the story, like uh, the Jewish community who would have been familiar with their own history would see that word Moab and be like, why in the world would you ever take your family down there? Because Moab had always been an enemy of God's people. Always. They hated God's people. Their relationship was marked with hatred and hostility, so much so that, look, when God was bringing his people up to the promised land, the people in Moab, like like God's people are are walking by famished, out of food, out of water. Who's got food and water? Moab. Did they help? No, they they wanted them to die, and so they, they, they sat there having a party as God's people walked by and refused to give them any help. That's Moab, and that wasn't all that they did. Moab actually, like, hired a prophet and sent this prophet out to walk among the uh, God's people and curse them to their face as they walk by, just to, like, call down every curse possible on these people. That's Moab, and that's not all they did. Moab used their own young women, like, In a way that, like, this is their own people. No love, no value, no virtue. Just taking advantage of uh, the beauty of their young women. And they sent these young women out into God's people to seduce them to do anything to kind of destroy their national identity, to attract their hearts away from their own God and their own women. Like, they were doing everything they could to destroy uh, God's people. Uh, That prophet's name uh, was Balaam. You're probably familiar with that story. And then they, they worked to seduce him with their young women. Uh, to turn their hearts away from the one true God. And then most recently in Israel's history, like during the period of the judges, Moab actually invades Israel under King Eglon and they occupy um, God's people's land for up to 20 years, just ravaging it, doing unmentionable things to the women and the children, just just burning the place down and exercising their dominance. That's Moab. And that's where Elimelech, old boy who said, my God is king, I can trust him, That's where he went to take his family. So it was shameful and it was dangerous. Now notice the digression in these verses too. In verse one, we read that they went to sojourn the country of Moab. What's sojourn? What's that word mean? Sojourn is synonymous with family mart run. Like I'm just going real quick to get some food off the shelf, baby, and I'll be right back home. Just sojourn, like sounds innocent enough, but notice the digression. They sojourn. Um, And then next in verse two, we read that they went into the country of Moab and they, what's the verb? They remained there. And then in verse four, we learn that they ended up living apart from God's people for 10 whole years, a full decade. Now, we're not passing judgment. What what we see here, this is our own story uh, coming to life in three dimensions right here in front of us. And this is what we see. Our own rebellion from the father always plays out in the same kind of digression. Uh, We leave. And then we linger away, and then we straight up live apart, right? So we we leave like, hey, just real quick. I just need a quick hit. Like I know this is forbidden. I know this dishonors God, but I just I want this. I need it. Um, And I know God's gonna forgive me when I get back. So like, just real quick, just one more time. Um, I'll repent tomorrow, and I won't do it again. So we 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 leave just real quick. The Family Mart run, but then we linger away. It's got our appetite. It's got our hooks in us, and. We we persist and eventually God will forgive me anyway. um, I have tomorrow. I know I have tomorrow. I'll wait till tomorrow to come home, and so we linger. But then the more we linger, the more it just we find out we have sunk roots and we live apart from the God who created us and redeemed us and in whom we find everything that we need. So we see in this family the same exact pattern that we live out all the time. We we. We go for, we leave for a little time, we linger away and then we live apart. And in living apart, we don't live, we actually die. You die apart from your father. So it's actually no surprise to read that Elimelech does in fact die, like he dies in Moab. Um, So the dark story grows darker, but then we read that his two sons die, so the dark story grows darker still. And here's another dark piece, even though Malon and Chilion had been married for 10 years, what didn't they have with their wives? No kids. They should have had four, five, six kids by this time as per this culture. But no babies from either marriage. Just dark. Everything was dark. And now Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are left as widows, And to be a widow in this culture, to be uh, without sons, a widow was exceptionally vulnerable physically, financially, socially, and really just about in every way. There was no real social structure in place um, in this time for a woman to go out kind of autonomously from a family structure and earn a living wage. It just was not part of their, their social norm. And so to be a widow, especially a widow without her two sons, would be uh, to be in a very destitute and vulnerable position. And so what we see for Elimelech's family was this. Though he could see the hilltops of Moab from a distance and it looked to offer hope, Elimelech was a false hope. And anything, guys, that we see on the horizon while our backs are turned to the father will always prove to be a false hope. It was a false hope. A man whose name meant my God is king chose instead to live like he was king and he led his family away from God and his decision absolutely destroyed his family. It's a tragic story. But just in case you haven't read all of Ruth yet and you're not familiar with her story, it's a little spoiler alert without too many details. This short story actually has a happy ending So something or someone has to move the story from barrenness and widowhood to marriage and a birth announcement of a long-awaited good king. That's how the story closes. Someone has to get these ladies from darkness to light. And so that brings us into our second section, out of darkness returning. So let's pick it up at verse 6. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and just wept. And they said to her, no way, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, girls, no, you're going to turn back. My daughters, why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband's? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight, and I laid with him, and would I get pregnant and bear you sons tomorrow? No. Would you wait then for these young men to be grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying while your life passes you by? No. So, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, uh, meaning she submitted to what she was being asked and she did go home. Uh, but Ruth clung to her and she said, Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, do what she's doing. But Ruth said, Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you again. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. May the Lord curse me, is what she's saying, if, um, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, hey, it's Naomi, right? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, meaning pleasant or lovely? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Out of darkness returning. So Naomi is 60 miles from Bethlehem. She's foraging in the meager fields of Moab, trying to find food, and with no social media with no internet, with no 24-hour news cycle, and really not even a healthy diplomatic relationship between these two peoples for the word to get back. Like there's no way she should have known from a dusty field in Moab that God had been kind to her people back in Bethlehem. No way. But Naomi hears that the Lord had visited his people with undeserved kindness. Look, we don't know how, but the author's just trying to make a point. God brought this word to Naomi for her good, This moment is the first ray of sunlight in what is just otherwise a very dark story. Like this moment represents the sun starting to rise on Naomi. Like this morning, when I realized today would not be a repeat of the rest of the week, it was the first moment of sunlight in the week. And what did it do for you? Your soul was just automatically, everything was better. That's this moment in the story. The Lord had visited his people And when God visits his people in the Old Testament, sometimes he visits in judgment, deserved judgment, and other times he visits in kindness or in mercy. Uh, Even though judgment's deserved, he chooses instead to show up and visit in mercy, and this was a visit of mercy. And then only after Naomi has learned of God's mercy does she decide to go home. So here's our second ray of sunlight in the story. God has somehow gotten chosen to get word to her that... um, That warms her heart to his kindness, and now her heart is warmed enough, though still dark. We'll see the darkness warmed enough that she begins to go back home. So we see that God's far-reaching kindness is the light which began to dispel the darkness of Naomi's night. God's kindness in Naomi's return home is like if you had to summarize everything we just read right here, the sentence could simply say, God's kindness led Naomi to go home, uh, to return. That's the point of emphasis right here in this part of the story. And we know this because the author actually employs the Hebrew word for return 12 times in this short section, but he only starts to use that word after he's already revealed that, his, that he acted kindly on behalf of his people. Naomi hears about the kindness, and it's warmed her heart, and now she's, she's going home. So that's like a big flag for us, guys. Like if we could... St- if we just slam a flag down into this page and the uh on top of the pole there's this banner that that reads god's kindness uh warms our hearts and god's kindness leads rebels to go back home that's exactly what's going on here his kindness led naomi to repentance and did you know that the father still works the same way with us today as he did for naomi back then like this isn't a one-off for naomi this is the way the father works for his children look Romans 2.4, there's a lot going on in Romans 2.4, but it leads to a question, and the question is this. Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In place of repentance, we could say to lead you back home to your father. That's, man, how good is our father that he, behind his decision to show us kindness, is a desire to bring rebel sons and daughters back home? He works this way with Naomi, and he works this way with us today. So we've already joked a little bit about the cold and the dreariness here in Okinawa this past week. And um, it gets worse in January and February, so be prepared. But this week, what I found myself wanting more than anything else was to hug a fireplace. Not the kind of fireplace you plug in, like the real one with stones and mortar and a mantle that like my great-granddaddy carved out of a tree somewhere, and, and just big crackling logs just popping on the fire. And I'm not talking about your cheesy Netflix video that plays a little carol. Like, unplug that and throw the TV. I am like talking real fireplace. If I had one, I would have been hugging the stones this week. And guys, in our dark seasons, what we need to know is this. God's kindness, his kindness is the fireplace in the dark and dreary winter of our souls. Only he can warm you. And in that discontent that is a dark and dreary season, you long for something, and even though you may not be able to articulate it, what your soul is longing for is to be warmed by the fires of God's kindness. That's what he's doing for Naomi. And that's what he does for us. His kindness always has this effect on the hearts of his people, always. Here's an example from Exodus 4. This is when God's people were still slaves and Moses shows up and he said, hey, hey guys, listen, the Lord has what? Same thing he does for Naomi. He's visited us. He's seen our affliction, and what's their response? Now, mind you, they're still in chains. Their lives are awful right now, but the kindness of God is enough to warm their hearts that they would gladly get down on a knee and turn their hearts to their father to worship him um, and to long for him and to hope for him. God's kindness warms our hearts in this way. So when God's people heard he had visited in kindness, even though they were still in chains, they bowed and worshiped. And the good news for us in the gospel, guys, this Advent season is that's not just the way that God acts towards his own family. God acts this way towards outsiders too. See, even though the book bears her name, and Ruth is not a, an insider. She's not originally part of God's family. She's a foreigner. In fact, there are only, um, this is the only book in the Old Testament that is named after a non-Jew and only one of two books named after a woman like this is a profound story in the in the old testament and even though the book bears her name to be honest the story has not really been about Ruth yet not even a little bit and to be honest with you the story never really becomes about Ruth it's all about God's kindness drawing Naomi back and bringing Naomi to life and how this this life out of darkness results in the eventual birth of of Jesus our rescuing king that's the storyline but in the subplot we learn that God visits outsiders in mercy and kindness too um, Simeon said something like that in Acts 15. Here it is for you. Acts 15:14 says Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, the outsiders, and why did He visit them in kindness? Here's God's aim: to take from them a people for His name. In other words, to visit outsiders and to adopt them into the family as rescued sons and daughters. So the tragedy. In Elimelech's rebel choice to step away from his king is redeemed by the king for the good of an outsider, for Ruth. She's about to be adopted in. And as the story unfolds by the end of this short book, we'll see that Elimelech's rebel choice will be redeemed by our good father, not just for Ruth, but for many rebel outsiders who will become sons and daughters in Jesus. Jesus. So this moment, this moment right here is where Ruth's story becomes ours as well. God visits outsiders in mercy, just like he did for Ruth and just like he does for us today. And he calls us home to be part of his forever forever family. And that's the hope of Advent. That is the hope of Advent. That's far-reaching kindness from God that dispels the darkest night of our soul. So now, Naomi is on her way out of darkness. She's returning but there's so much darkness to be dispelled from her heart. Why? Because Naomi has spent ten long years away from her father. Guys, any time we spend any time away from the Father, let alone, let alone ten long years, the cumulative effect of that is an entangling darkness and a crushing of life. So she's got ten death-filled years of distance from God, and it's darkened her soul. So it's going to take time and a lot of exposure to God's God's kindness. Just like in a week like last week where you can't just walk by a fireplace. You need to sit down and let your body be warmed for a couple of hours and then you're good. That's life, guys. We can't just like talk about God and his kindness. It takes time in proximity to the kindness of our Father to warm our hearts and dispel this darkness. Why? Well, because after 10 long years, Naomi carries deep pain and sadness. That's what we see in verse 9. It says, The Lord grant that you may find rest. Naomi's talking to her daughters in law. She said, May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices. And what could they do? They wept. Naomi's trying to leave. She's trying to get the girls to stay in Moab, but the only emotion that can be expressed is just weeping. There's no joy in their relationship. There's no joy from the last 10 years. Uh, 10 years apart from the father is marked by nothing but sorrow. Naomi also carries deep rooted bitterness. We see in verses 11 to 14, it says, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? I have yet, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, and go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is, look, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lift up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Guys, what do we see in Naomi? We see in her bitterness. Naomi is blaming God for every ounce of trouble in her life. But where did the trouble originate? It, it, origera- yeah, I can't even say it. originated when Elimelech led his family away from the father and led them to spend 10 years in, the, in Moab, this foreign place, away from their father and their father's people. And so now in her bitterness, Naomi is blaming God for her trouble. There's no sense of personal or family responsibility. That's the way bitterness always works in our hearts. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Or when bitterness really sinks deep, it's God's fault. He is to blame for all of this. So Orpah agrees to remain in Moab with her family, but Ruth is not having it. She says, Naomi, no. And then she's about to say something to Naomi that's going to reveal just how deep the bitterness runs in Naomi's heart. Her deep, cold, unfeeling heart. Look at this in verse 15. And she said, Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should return like her Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And bury me there. And may the Lord curse me if anything but death separates me from you. Is that not a stunning line from a young woman or what? She, she, she should be going back to her homeland where she in her youth and her beauty could easily remarry and have a full life in front of her. Instead, she lays it all down. She walks away from every bit of it, not for her own good. She has no idea what awaits her across the water. Actually, she does. You know what awaits her? The land that her father and grandfather where they raped women, where they abused kids, and where they stole everything that wasn't theirs. And now she's going to go back over there. That's great risk. That's great sacrifice. And so there's no way she's doing this for her own good. She's doing it for Naomi's good. That's stunning. And what's Naomi's response? Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Silence. Silence is her response. Now, maybe Naomi just realized that Ruth is more stubborn than she is. And she's like the mother-in-law that taps out and she's like, fine. But I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's why the author gives us that glimpse. More likely, Naomi's heart is so cold, she's got nothing to say in response to this earth-shattering kindness, this offer of self-sacrificing kindness, just silence. Naomi is in the death grip of bitterness. Verse 19 The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, yay, it's Naomi, she's back. And she said to them, don't ever call me by my name Naomi again. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Guys, Naomi's vision is blinded by bitterness, and we're not picking on Naomi. Naomi is coming to life for us in the pages of this story, but we are her. Like if our story was being told, the words that she's saying, what she feels in her heart is exactly what we say and exactly what we feel, and she's blinded in her bitterness, and in her bitterness, she says, the Lord brought me back empty. That's bitterness, But she will soon say, as her heart is warmed by the fire of God's presence and the bitterness melts away, she will soon come to say, I was empty and the Lord's far-reaching kindness, he brought me back home. Like the sentence will flip in order. And in bitterness, Naomi said, the Almighty has brought this calamity on me. Again, bitterness blaming another for the situation that she's in. But as she sits by the fire and her story unfolds and her heart's melt melts as she spends more time in greater proximity to the Father's kindness, her heart will soon say, not that the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me, but the Almighty, uh, if not for the Almighty's kindness, my calamity would have consumed me. But she's so bitter right now. She wants people to stop using her real name. Naomi means pleasant. Or lovely. That's what Naomi means. So when she says, don't call me that, she's saying there is nothing pleasant or lovely in my life. Again, I don't want to hear the word, especially don't call me lovely. God's taken it all away. In bitterness, she wants a change of name. Really, she wants a change of identity. She's not suffering from bitterness. She's straight up, I am bitter. I am a bitter person. Bitterness defines who I am. And so she asks to be called Mara, which doesn't make any sense to us but the original audience would have known Israel's history. And in Exodus 15, 23, we learn where this name Mara comes from. It says, when God's people came to Mara, so they're sojourning from Egypt to the promised land and they're out of water and they come to Mara and there's a well there, but they couldn't drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore they named it Mara. So this is like, this is their family history right here. So that's what Naomi says. There's nothing satisfying in my life. Nothing that will quench my soul. There is no good. Just call me Mara. Everybody would have known exactly what that meant. But there's an unseen beauty here. There's an unseen beauty. Not in Naomi's heart. The beauty's not restored in her heart yet. Like it's still just all ugliness. But here's the beauty. If you're to read one verse later in that Exodus chapter, just one, where we've learned that they named this well in their anger, in their frustration, Mara, just bitterness. You know what the very next verse tells us? We read that God, in His mercy, transformed the bitter waters of Mara into sweet, refreshing water. And that's exactly what he is going to do for Naomi as the story unfolds. The more time that she spends in proximity to her father, the more her heart will warm and her bitterness will melt. And the bitter water that just sucks life and gives death for her and for others will be replaced with life-giving, life-satisfying, just joy as she is transformed by her father. Guys, that's the hope of Advent. That is the hope of Advent. What happened to Naomi can happen to any one of us because of God's mercy. God's far-reaching kindness is the light which dispels the deepest darkness of not only Naomi's dark night, but your dark night as well. All right. Now, dispelling darkness, the restoration, the restoring. Just one verse, verse 22. This dark story is going to have just a glimmer of light at the end. It says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. When did they come there? What what are the closing words of this chapter? It's a life-giving phrase. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi makes it home to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest And in Israel, that's springtime. Harvest is is or barley is harvested in the spring, and spring for people is a seasoned not just for people for all of creation is a season marked by new life. And that's how the story will continue to unfold. God will give Naomi new life in unexpected, even impossible ways that could not have happened apart from God's mercy. See, Elimelech led his family away from God, and they met death. But Naomi has returned home back to the Father. So now, this dark story is filled with more than just rays of sunlight. Naomi is back home in the warmth of the Father. Her frozen soul will begin to melt in the warmth of the Father's kindness. And her life will be restored. Guys... That is so important for us to see this in the first chapter of Ruth. To be away from the Father is death for the soul. It's bitterness. To be home with the Father is to have life restored over time. There is no third path. There is no alternative storyline in life. You are either away from the Father dying or in proximity to the Father being restored and knowing life. Uh, One of the guys I follow on on Twitter, I follow him for his theological writing and I follow him for his physical fitness advice because he's the only only theologian I know who has a PhD who could school every one of you in the gym and outside. You could pick the workout routine and he would slay you. That's like an anomaly right there in the world. So that's a dude I like to follow. Like he challenges me theologically and uh, his physical fitness stuff is pretty legit too. His name's Paul Maxwell. And this week, Paul tweeted... Every sunrise is God's mockery of despair. Every sun, I felt that this morning, like just in a physical sense, like yeah, despair, yeah, darkness, you'd be mocked, like there will be life in Okinawa. But that's what's happening for Naomi too. The sun is rising on her in God's kindness. And every time the sun rises, God is mocking despair and darkness. So Naomi makes it home at harvest time, signaling to her that her hunger will finally be satisfied, like in a physical sense, she doesn't have to forage in the fields of Moab anymore apart from the father. She can come home in an undeserved way and sit at the father's table and feast. No more foraging, but that's all you can do when you're apart from the father. You are a mere forager in a land that doesn't want to give up any real nourishment. Or you can repent and go home to your dad and feast at his table because Jesus has done everything necessary to earn you a place in the family. So she's home at harvest time. Her soul's going to be satisfied, but it's going to be satisfied by the one who gives the harvest. God visited Naomi some 3000 years ago, and in the advent of Jesus 1000 years later, he would visit his people again. And Luke writes about it this way in Luke 1:68, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has what? visited in mercy and kindness and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." So that's Jesus he's talking about, who we'll learn later in Ruth and Ruth is descended from Naomi, from Ruth herself. And ever since that first advent, the father has continued to visit rebels who are far from home with his far-reaching kindness. This is my favorite verse in, in Luke right here. Luke 1, 78 says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high, just like he did for Naomi. This is a promise, guys to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Guys, every sunrise is is God's mockery of despair. There is hope for you in the advent of Jesus. You are in darkness now. You are in despair. This This is the reason Jesus came to give light to you and to warm your soul and to dispel the darkness of your night, to guide your feet into the way of peace. Because the Father is so kind to us in Jesus. So kind. Elimelech led his sons away from Bethlehem in search of bread that would give life. God the Father led his only son to Bethlehem to his eventual death so that he could be our bread of life. Someone wrote this way, said, Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build their own kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus, though, went into exile by choice from his father's presence so that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and living future in his kingdom. Guys, we are a Limelech. We go to the fields of of Moab to find what we think we're not getting in our father. And he pursues us in Jesus. So in closing, guys, Ruth gave up everything except her life. She didn't actually give up her life, but she gave up everything for Naomi's good. That is a beautiful sacrifice. But Jesus, who is the true and better Ruth, set aside everything to include his life for our good. That's a better sacrifice. And Jesus did this to rescue us from our rebellion. He did this to rescue us from the famine that was just ravaging our souls he did this to bring us back home from Moab so that we would be in the father's presence he did this to turn um, to he, he did this to transform our broken bitter hearts with his sweet life-giving water this is what jesus does for us in giving his life and this is advent this is the hope of advent so this advent sort of encourages us to be like naomi to learn from her lesson she was far away from home and when god when she was just a little bit aware of God's kindness. It warmed her heart and she started to come back home. Guys, some of you sitting here this morning know that you're not in Bethlehem. You know that you're in Moab. You know you're foraging for food for your soul when you could be home feasting at your father's table. And you know your father's kind to you in Jesus. May I encourage you to allow that kindness to warm your heart and to turn and to begin walking back to your father. To come home, be like Naomi, and don't remain distant. And that's a daily coming home for us. It's not one time. It's daily. Because daily our eyes turn from Bethlehem. We look to Moab and we're so tempted And so we kill that desire, not by being strong people, but by rehearsing the Father's kindness towards us through Jesus and remembering that his far-reaching kindness is always the light which dispels our darkest night. In darkness, Jesus is our light. Guys, come home to the Father. Stop foraging. Enjoy the feast that has been earned for you by Jesus at your Father's table. You don't have to do anything to earn that place. He's already earned it for you. Repent, believe the good news of the gospel, come home and as you come home, you know what you find? Your father is not cold and distant, sitting on a porch with a scowl, waiting for you to walk down the long driveway home. He's the father we learn about in the story of the prodigal son who sees you coming down the road and already knew you were coming. He orchestrated your trip home. And he jumps off of the porch and with tears streaming down his face, runs to you faster than you can run to him and embraces you through the gift of his spirit and warms and dispels the darkness of your heart and gives you life. That's your father and that's how kind he is towards you in Jesus. Let's pray and thank him for that. Father, you're so good to us in undeserving ways and you know we leave Bethlehem all the time and we go down to Moab. Father, rescue us from that restore our life. Father, for those who are so far distant, where bitterness is just, just, it's just clouding their vision and choking out the life in their hearts, Father, give them enough light from your kindness today to begin thawing their hearts and warming and giving the gift of life. So, Father, that every person in this room, this Advent, will make their way back home, having been warmed by your kindness. And will no longer forage, but will feast gladly at your table. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.